The following is an encore performance. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to Tales from the South, presented by bourbonandboots.com. With a preacher said, I only wanted to say, warning us all about the judgment day, telling us how rock and roll will never stay. How's everybody doing tonight? All right, well, welcome to a very special edition of Tales from the South, a series we call the Ten Roof Project, where well-known Southerners bring their own true stories to life. We are on location in the beautiful, historic Argento Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas. Tales from the South is presented by Southern lifestyle brand bourbonandboots.com, and I'm your host, Paula Martin Morell. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern style storytelling? <laughs> Originally from Jackson, Mississippi, Vic Fleming has served as Little Rock's traffic judge since 1997. In addition, he's an adjunct professor of law and literature at the Bowen School of Law, a syndicated humor columnist, a member of the Arkansas Writers Hall of Fame, and the author of Real Lawyers Do Change Their Briefs, which contains drawings by John Deering and forward by Hillary Rodham Clinton and Bill Clinton. In his spare time, Vic Fleming constructs crossword puzzles for various publications and newspapers. A constructor since 2004, Vic has had 27 puzzles in the New York Times, 11 of them collaborations with eight different partners, including three with Bonnie Gentry. His puzzles have also appeared in the LA Times, New York Sun, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Games Magazine, and more. He serves in a, as an official at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, and every year since 2007, Vic has directed the Arkansas Puzzle Day Festival at the Clinton School of Public Service. He is featured in the award-winning documentary, Wordplay, singing his original song, If You Don't Come Across, I'm Gonna Be Down. Vic's, Vic lives in Little Rock, Arkansas with his wife, Susan, dog, Maggie, and cat, Jinx. He and Susan's two kids are grown and living in North Carolina. Tonight, Vic takes us back 25 years to a dark street corner on the other side of the world in Lost, Ladies and gentlemen, Vic Fleming. It was 2.30 a.m. For an hour and a half, we'd been walking in circles. Unlike Little Rock, Arkansas, or any U.S. city I knew, Moscow, Russia had no streetlights, no neon signs, no illuminated landmarks. There were no taxis, squad cars, or buses to flag down for help. Spent by jet lag, frustration, and fear, we stood on a dark street corner trying to hold it together. We were, after all, in what our president had called the evil empire. <laughs> Among people we'd been taught since birth were our enemies. It was 1986. Reagan was well into his second term. Gorbachev had been in office for over a year. The times, they were a-changing. Glasnost and perestroika were the buzzwords of the day, signaling reform in the Soviet Union and an upswing in tourism. 
But the Cold War was not really over yet. In mid-October, I found myself one of 14 Americans headed to the USSR as part of an exchange, an exchange program, not a prisoner exchange. <laughs> a people-to-people -people dialogue between similar groups. On our side, journalists, consultants, lawyers, young urban professionals. On their side, bureaucrats, educators, lawyers, rising urban proletariat. The yuppies and the ruppies. <laughs> We'd arrived in Moscow in late afternoon. After settling in at the Cosmos Hotel, we had dinner during which we became acquainted with the three interpreters who would be our counselors for the next several days. Dinner was over around 10. Our interpreters were ready to go home, but we young urban professionals, full of energy and curiosity, were ready for an adventure. We pleaded with our handlers to take us to Red Square for some sightseeing. The lead interpreter, Natasha, relented. I will show you how to get there, she said, and how to get back. A hundred feet from the Cosmos door, down a nondescript sidewalk, closed for the day kiosks marked a subway entrance. Down the escalator we went, with Natasha explaining the plan. We will get on the green subway line and go in that direction, she said, pointing. We will ride for three bells. That will be Red Square. She was with us. We did as she'd said. Up another escalator, and there we were. The subway closes at 1 a.m., Natasha cautioned. Return to this station. Repeat the process in reverse. Down the escalator, green line, three bells, that direction, she pointed. Fourteen young American heads nodded as she bid us farewell. See you in the morning, I hope. <laughs> we roamed, skirting the Kremlin with a healthy respect for the uniformed guards who watched us closely. In the lobby of the Interest Hotel, and the area outside St. Basil's Cathedral, we ignored overtures in broken English, asking where we were from. At midnight, we saw the changing of the guard at Lenin's tomb. Each successive activity was structured to ensure that we reached the subway before one. The last thing we wanted was to be stranded some distance from our hotel at that hour. Time turned out not to be an issue. We arrived at the subway station at 12.45. Finding the green line was no problem, and we counted three bells in unison. Ascending the escalator, we smugly congratulated ourselves, strangers in a strange land, for having mastered the Moscow mass transit system in the wee hours of a chilly Russian morning. Emerging amid closed kiosks, we hung a left on the sidewalk and strolled a hundred feet where, to our reckoning, the Cosmos Hotel ought to have been. <laughs> but it wasn't. No problem, we optimistically concluded. We had obviously just come out the wrong side of the building. As we circled the building, though, the sidewalk ended. No sidewalk, no hotel, I thought. And I was right. On the other side of the building was a grassy expanse of undetermined size. 
Moonlight and starlight being obscured by a thin but distinct fog, visibility was non-existent across this stretch of ground. Besides, our station was on a sidewalk near a street and only a hundred feet from the hotel. We walked back to the sidewalk, followed it to an unlit intersection of streets where we had three choices, left, right, or straight. Someone in our group was sure he saw the hotel in the distance to the left. So we went left, walked half a mile, saw nothing, retraced our steps. We then went right, walked for five minutes, reaching another street. Someone else now saw the hotel, she said, straight ahead across the street, a couple of hundred yards. Yeah, right, I thought, seeing nothing, which is what we all saw 200 yards later. We wandered for 90 minutes. At 2.30, there we stood, on a corner, in the dark, trying not to panic. The others posited theories as to where we'd gone wrong. Moot, I thought. Only one thing mattered. I tried to focus on that. How can we find another human being who... Out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw movement. Squinting strategically to see through the foggy Soviet evening, I confirmed my suspicion. There, at a distance of 50 yards, lurked the first sign of life we'd seen in hours. A woman with a shawl around her shoulders was diagonally crossing the street. She seemed in a hurry. Without a word to my companions, I bolted from the group. I sprinted to the woman. Hearing my footsteps, she stopped abruptly, turned, and put her hand to her mouth. Pajalsta, I blurted, then added the translation, excuse me, on the off chance that she spoke English. Gidia Gastinet se Cosmos? Where is the Cosmos Hotel? An uncomfortable moment elapsed as she scanned my face with deep brown eyes. Perhaps she saw over my shoulder the 13 others working their way up the street to where I stood. <laughs> After what seemed an eternity, she spoke, no comprendo. No comprendo, I heard myself say, a smile creeping into my heart. Habla usted espanol? <laughs> 20 years earlier, in Greenville, Mississippi, I'd taken Spanish one and two in high school. <laughs> and at Davidson College, I took a Spanish lit course my freshman year. See, sí, I heard her say timidly. Muy bien, I exclaimed. <laughs> Donde esta el Hotel Cosmos, por favor? The woman began speaking her native tongue fast. <laughs> Mas despacio, por favor, I said. Slower, please. Gathering words and phrases as I was able, I believe I heard her say that her parents were from Spain, had immigrated when she was a child, and for some reason had never learned Russian. She was not familiar with the cosmos by name, but it might be a certain building not too far away. She began to walk, somewhat haltingly, across a field that seemed to lead only into further darkness. 
After a few hundred paces, though, through the mist, I saw the outline of a building. As we got a little closer, I told her, Si, eso es nuestro hotel. Muchas gracias. De nada buena suerte, I thought I heard her say. When the others turned to thank her, she had vanished. It was almost 3 a.m. We were exhausted. We agreed to discuss the implications of this miracle at breakfast, we young American urban leaders. <laughs> A few hours later, after some sleep, rising to greet the sun, we all had the same two thoughts. One, how had we managed to lose an entire hotel? In the light of day, each of us retraced our steps, discovering what Natasha had neglected to tell us, that the area subway stop had its entrance and exit in different buildings, a quarter mile apart. The straight line connecting them was through the grassy expanse behind the exit station. Clinging to streets and sidewalks, as we had done in the pitch black of 2 a.m., we'd have had to walk away from the station and the hotel the straight option, where we first went left and then went right, and we'd have had to go about a mile, making three 90-degree turns. We'd have never figured that out in the dark. Two, well, our second thought ran something like this. Moscow, Russia, 3 a.m., 14 lost Americans, and the one resident who's awake and taking a walk is a Spanish immigrant who can't speak Russian. <laughs> Someone in our group speaks enough Spanish to ask her for help. Coincidence? <laughs> I'm convinced that somehow the KGB was watching us from a distance. With infrared binoculars, perhaps, and with amused frustration, those stupid young American leaders, they will never find the hotel. Who can we send to help them? Ah, yes, Agent 99, the Spanish woman. She will be perfect for the job. <laughs> and so the exchange went on. Many more miles were walked by us young urban American leaders, most of them while we were not lost. We met interesting people and had once-in-a-lifetime experiences on a daily basis. We made memory after unforgettable memory, but none more vivid, meaningful, and permanent than that of the evanescent Spanish angel who emerged from the depths of a dark Moscow night to lead us figuratively homeward and literally back to the cosmos. All right, well, thank you so much, Vic Fleming, for being on the Tin Roof Project here at Tales from the South. Thanks for having me. So your story is set in 1986 Russia. You were part of an exchange program, not a prisoner exchange, as you clarified. So how did this come about for you, and have you been back to Russia since? I've not been back, uh, but in 1986, uh, Senator David Pryor, along with uh, Graham Catlett, who's here tonight, Vincent Salako, who's important to the North Little Rock downtown area here, and a few other people, were working on ways to uh, ex explore uh, an improved uh, uh, foreign relations with the Soviet Union with the possibility of uh, facilitating some trade between Arkansas businesses and Russia. And um, 
They came up with this idea of uh, people, a series of people-to-people -people dialogues or exchanges uh, that would bring together groups of people who were not high-ranking government officials, but just common, ordinary uh, people, uh, to discuss issues that they had in common, a way of us getting to know them better and them getting to know us better. I was practicing law with Graham at the time. Uh, I volunteered to be on the host committee for the first exchange, which brought 12 Soviet uh, uh, young business people over here in July of 1986. And then when they were planning the, uh, re the uh, second exchange for the fall, I volunteered and said I, I wanted to go. So how did they like Arkansas? Oh, it was fabulous. Uh, any of you who are here remember that uh, exchange in July of 1986? Yeah. Well, you, most of you were there. You just had too much to drink. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it was great. Uh, we, we had fishing trips and concerts and uh, meals. And, uh, and in addition to being in Little Rock, they also went to the standard target cities of New York and and uh, in Washington. And when I was over there, our group went not only to Moscow and Leningrad, but we also went to uh, Almaty, now Almaty, Kazakhstan. Even before this story took place in Russia, you had already started writing legal humor columns in, uh, in 1984, is that correct? Right, in 1984, I started writing a humor column for the Arkansas Bar Association magazine that came out quarterly. Okay. And while I was over in uh, the Soviet Union, two of the delegates there were lawyers, and so I was able to get a couple of columns out of the trip. In fact, I remember there's two very sophisticated women who were lawyers from Moscow. When we went to Kazakhstan, they were no happier than I was about the local custom of toasting and drinking uh, fermented mare's milk. Uh, and so I blamed it on their culture, and they would have none of that. They said, this is not our culture. This is their culture. So. How did you happen to land on the, this topic to write about, this topic of legal humor? You know, uh, the beauty of legal humor as a genre, if we can call it a genre, is that it contains things that if, it were, if they were jokes, they would not be funny. But because they happen, and most of my stuff uh, that I write about happens in the courtroom or in the heat of battle, so to speak, and with people doing their best uh, to do the right thing, and somehow or other things that wouldn't be funny at all if they were jokes, just wind up being mega laughter producers. And I've brought a few examples. Uh, this, is, um, this is actual sworn testimony. Now remember, these people are under oath. Uh, Ma'am, were you wearing your seatbelt at the time of the crash? No, but I had my girdle on. Sally, what did you do to try and prevent this accident? I closed my eyes and screamed as loud as I could. <laughs> Please state the location of your right foot immediately prior to impact. Immediately prior to impact, my right foot was located at the immediate end of my right leg. <laughs> Jenny, how old are you? Seven. Jenny, do you know what happens if you tell a lie in court? Yes, sir, you go to hell. <laughs> Is that all? Well, isn't that enough? <laughs> uh, now, you were knocked unconscious? Yes, and someone called the paramedics. Then Mr. Sistrunk came over and gave me artificial insemination. <laughs> You know, mouth to mouth. All right, so along with being an exchange yuppie in Russia and a syndicated legal humor columnist, 
you are also known worldwide for your crossword puzzles and for your crossword puzzle song. So can you tell us more about this, each of those? I've always been fascinated with mazes and word games from the time uh, that memory kicked in. And I guess my mother got me started working crossword puzzles, solving them when I was probably in junior high school. And uh, from time to time, I would, I would uh, dabble in trying to make crosswords. And it was really time consuming before the days of, of computers. Uh, but you know, in 2003, I had been thinking that I wanted to, to finally sit down and learn how to make crossword puzzles and do it right. And in 2003, uh, I first saw an article in an airline magazine about Merle Regal, a syndicated uh, crossword puzzle constructor. And then like the very next week, I saw a 60 Minutes piece on Will Shorts, the crossword editor of the New York Times. And I thought, well, maybe that's a sign that I'm supposed to sit down and learn how to do this thing. And so uh, I sat down and I, uh, I submitted... Uh, uh, several puzzles to the New York Times, and I was totally unsuccessful at first. But once I finally asked someone to help me figure out what I was doing wrong, I got to where I had a few puzzles published and accepted uh, by the Times in 2004. So in March 2005, I decided I would go, for the first time ever for me, to the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. It's an event that takes place every year in March uh, in the uh, New York City area. It used to take place in Stamford, Connecticut every year. Um, and they were having a talent show on Saturday night as part of the After Hours Entertainment. And I had written this song and was planning to uh, perform the song at the talent show. And I had made arrangements with two other people who have better singing voices than me, Ben Tausig and Stella Daly, who are crossword puzzle makers from Brooklyn. They were going to meet me and we were going to rehearse on Friday night. Well, as it turns out, uh, early at the conference uh, or the tournament, I met Christine O'Malley and Patrick Creedon, husband and wife. She's an associate producer, and he's a cameraman. They're from Hollywood, and they are there to shoot footage for a documentary about crosswords, to which your natural reaction would be boring. Um, and they wanted to know if they could vi videotape our rehearsal. I said, sure. So they came, and they videotaped our rehearsal. They liked the song. They left me and the song in the movie. They later licensed the song they had someone else record it and used it in the closing credits. But we're still talking a documentary about crosswords. I mean, how much more boring can it get? No one who was there at the tournament was giving this movie any chance of success. Well, the next thing I know, this film has been accepted to the Sundance Film Festival, one of 16 documentaries accepted. Um, it's at the Sundance, it's bought by IFC Films and the Weinstein Company. And it has a theatrical run during which it becomes the 24th highest grossing documentary of all time. And in 2006, it got the Golden Tomato Award for the highest positive review rating of any movie, including Mission Impossible and Casino Royale and Al Gore's documentary that grossed 20 times what Wordplay did. But anyhow, uh, we, just, we just had a ball with it and... Uh, what more can I say? It was just, it was an incredibly serendipitous and fun experience. Your song is, is the actual, uh, it's in, it runs during the credits? Well, at the very end of, this is an ironic story, at the very end of the credits, Sean O'Malley, Christine's brother, who's a fabulous musician, uh, his version of the chorus of the song plays at the very end of the credits, right after another song. So I like to tell people that my song played with somebody really good playing it to empty theaters all over the country, because I mean, it's at the very tail end of the credits, but there is a five-minute scene in the middle of the movie where, where our rehearsal is, uh, is highlighted 
uh, with me singing some of the words of the song. So. And so uh, would y'all like to hear him do his song tonight? Y'all hear that? The pay or play extender is Ola, not Olay. And it's anti that you want, not anti, when the clue is pay to play. Lou is a John on the British Isle. Ryan and Cole both ran the mile. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. Your love to me is a mystery, and the clues are all around. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. Well, you're an easy fill on Mondays, but when the weekends come, your themeless open spaces make me feel so dumb. Triple stacks absurdity, pop culture and obscurity. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. Everybody sing, if you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. Your love to me is a mystery and the clues are all around. If you don't come across, I'm gonna be down. So how about our story and storyteller tonight? Tales from the South is presented by Southern Lifestyle brand, bourbonandboots.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from all Southerners. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time for another edition of Bourbon and Boots Tales from the South. Good night, everybody.
So 